Over the last couple weeks, we've been in a series called What We Believe, right? We've been talking through the doctrines of the church, and um, everybody likes a good plot twist, right? Well, last week was a massive plot twist in the whole story, wasn't it? If you look back over the last couple weeks, you can see the progression we've been building, these building blocks of, of our faith. We started with Scripture. We then talked about who God is, and it's not just God, there's God is three in one. So we talked about who Jesus is and we talked about what the Holy Spirit is and we talked about creation. And then we talked about humanity. The crown jewel of creation was man made in God's image and everything was awesome. And then last week, Troy brought the bad news, right? The ultimate bad news. This plot twist that said all that was good now got turned upside down by this thing we call sin. I don't know about you, but I thought Troy did a phenomenal job last week. And we were talking this week and just encouraging him and saying, hey, I think you are the sin guy. (laughs) I'm not sure if he liked that or not, but loved what he shared with us last week. Loved the simplicity of it and then pointing to the bad news. And on Wednesday night, as we're diving a little deeper in this, we talked about this idea. While sin is bad news, the only thing worse than bad news is not knowing the bad news, right? But the fact that our God loves us enough to say there is bad news, and I'm telling you what it is. I'm telling you what the problem is so that I can give you the solution is absolutely amazing. See, three chapters into the story that God created, all that God had created is ruined. The perfect garden is fractured. Man's relationship with God is severed. And sin ushers in an entirely new reality. Death. Really, really, really based on bad, bad news. And based on what we know about the holiness of our God, any observer could see that there would be no hope in fixing this solution. It wasn't going to fix itself. They weren't going to get past this. There was a rescue that needed to happen. A rescuer was required. Because of sin, we need salvation. Our statement on salvation is this. It says, we believe Jesus Christ by his suffering and death made atonement for all humankind. Whoever will believe and receive him by grace through faith will be saved. The bad news is followed by the good news that is salvation. So I've got a question for you. Have you ever been rescued? Have you ever been in a place where you knew you needed help and someone you needed someone to come and save the day or you need someone to help you? Have you ever been rescued? Well, in 2018, you might be a lot of things that went on in your life in 2018. Not sure what comes to mind with 2018, but there was one event in 2018 that captured the world's attention. An event that occurred in one country and yet mesmerized all countries. The country was Thailand. Do you remember what happened? Soccer team. A soccer team got caught in a cave. Wandering in, exploring this cave, they got trapped deep inside this cave, over a mile inside this cave. When flooding and rain happened outside, raised the water level, it was impossible for them to get out. It took nine days to even determine where they were. Nine days to determine where they were. It took eight days to rescue them and to bring them out safely. While there was a lot of debate around how the rescue should happen, the question was not if rescue was needed. The whole world looked and said, we've got to get those kids. We've got to get those 12 kids and that coach. We've got to get them out. The question was, is rescue possible? 
From a theological standpoint, the doctrine of sin definitively declares that rescue is required. That's what Troy talked about last week. But the doctrine of salvation comes alongside the doctrine of sin and victoriously proclaims that rescue is in fact possible. It's required and it's possible. Last week, Troy ended it with a cliffhanger in Romans 7, 24 and 25, which says, Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is Jesus. Now, for some of you, this sermon could be really short, right? Because the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's go get lunch. But what I hope to do over the next few moments is to deepen how incredible and remind you of the rescue that happened and the significance of this rescue so that each and every one of us who knows Jesus and recognize we've been rescued by Jesus would leave today worshiping like crazy because of what he's done. And maybe if there are those of you here this morning that have yet to be rescued by looking at what is now possible And seeing what is required, maybe today would be the day that you say, yes, rescue me. You see, the rescue, when I tell you that a soccer team was rescued from a cave in Thailand, you might go, cool. But if you watched and you read and you followed what was required, you recognize how incredible that rescue was. Look at just this quick summary of what was required to bring those boys to safety. The rescue effort involved as many as 10,000 people, including more than 100 divers, scores of rescue workers, representatives from about 100 governmental agencies, 900 police officers, and 2,000 soldiers. 10 police helicopters, 7 ambulances, and more than 700 diving cylinders, and the pumping of more than 1 billion liters of water from the cave was required to bring those boys to safety. Some estimate the cost of that rescue at being over $500 million. When you recognize what was necessity, what the rescue needed, what was needed, it allows you to marvel at the rescue even more. And that's my prayer today. Is that as we look at this doctrine of salvation and you remember and you're reminded of how you have been rescued, you would marvel at what our God has done for you and for me. Last week, Troy pointed to the garden where sin started. And I want to pick up right there in some of the darkest moments of the story. And in the darkest moments, we're going to see a glimmer of hope that's going to point us to the rescue that is to come. As God is addressing Adam and Eve, and he starts by addressing the serpent, he says this to the snake, to the devil. He says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, it's easy to walk, to to read over this and go, okay, he sounds like he's kind of mad at the snake. Okay, he's going to crush his head. This is speaking figuratively and forward to the fact that, hey, guess what? Someone is coming from Eve, the offspring of Eve, that's going to crush your head. Now, when your head is crushed, you're not injured, you're dead. And what he's pointing to is he's saying, hey, there's a rescuer coming that will kill death. So much so that Paul picks up on it in Romans 16 when he writes, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. From the very beginning, God was pointing to the reality that sin will not win. Rescue was required and a rescuer was coming. But 
also in Genesis, in these dark moments. God isn't just speaking of what's to come. He then puts into action what will one day happen on behalf of all of us. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, they felt shame. They realized they were naked. And what did they do? They took fig leaves and they sewed them together to cover themselves. And God saw that covering, saw what they were doing to cover themselves and goes, there's nothing you can do that can adequately, adequately cover your sin and your shame. And so what does he do? In Genesis 3, 21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. How do you get garments of skin? An animal has got to die. And so even in these dark moments, as God points to a rescuer, he demonstrates how this rescue is going to happen. A.W. Pink, a theologian, writes this. He says, It was the first gospel sermon preached by God himself. Not in words, but in symbol and action. It was a setting forth of the way by which a sinful creature could return unto and approach his holy creator. It was a blessed illustration of substitution. The innocent dying in the stead of the guilty. When you look at the garden, right after the story seems ruined, our God speaks to a rescuer and he demonstrates what the rescue is going to look like. You see, from the beginning of the great disgraceful exit from the garden, sacrifices were made, not just by God's people, but by all people. But what's interesting is those around God's people offered sacrifices in a different posture than the way God had requested his people to offer sacrifices. You see, the pagan culture offered sacrifices as an attempt to appease God. As an attempt to make sure that God, that we think you're probably angry. We don't know exactly what to do. So we're going we're gonna, to, we're going to kill an animal and we're going to offer this to you, hopefully making you not as mad at us. But the sacrificial system that God gave his people was completely different. You see, when the Israelites get rescued from Egypt and God brings them out, he gives them the law. And he gives them what we now have as a book called Leviticus. Now, Leviticus doesn't normally make the top 10 of people's books in the Bible, right? Like you start your Bible reading, you go, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. You get to Leviticus and the train comes off the tracks, doesn't it? Leviticus, you read it and you're like, what is going on? I remember one time reading through it and just being overwhelmed by the amount of blood it talked about. Like the sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. In the first 20 chapters, blood is mentioned 87 times. Why? Why was blood such a big deal? Why was sacrifice such a big deal for God and making clear to his people how to regain a right standing before God? Leviticus 17, 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. From the garden and into, further into the Old Testament, we find again and again that sin requires blood to be shed. Paul, the writer of Hebrews, picks up on this later when he writes this. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, while the pagan cultures around them used sacrifices in an attempt to appease God, God gave his people a sacrificial system with the sole purpose of showing them exactly what was required for them to enter back into right relationship with him. 
God gave the sacrificial system not so that people would try to appease him, but because that God wanted to be in relationship with him. You see, sacrifices were offered so that God's presence could continue to dwell with his people. The tabernacle, the temple, where sacrifices were offered day after day after day after day were done so that God could stay. Why? Because God wants relationship with his people. In Leviticus, you get to Leviticus chapter 16, and you come to this idea of the day of atonement. And once a year, a priest would go and would offer a sacrifice on behalf of himself and on behalf of the Israelite people, and then two goats would be brought forward. And they would cast lots to see which goat got picked. One goat would be brought and would be slaughtered and would be sacrificed. The other goat, ceremonially, the priest would take the representatively take the sins of the people, lay his hand on the goat's head, transferring the sins to the goat, and then they would send the goat out into the wilderness, sending the sins away from the people. Now, interestingly, this goat carrying the sins didn't die, wasn't sacrificed. What was sacrificed was the spotless, blameless lamb. And that blood was brought into the Holy of Holies where the priest would sprinkle the blood, cleansing God's place, of the sins of the people so he could continue to dwell. You see, the fact that sin required payment was not lost on God's people because day after day after day, they saw and were reminded of the cost of sin and that sin required sacrifice. Anybody here have a sense of justice? Like when something goes wrong, you go, man, we got to right that wrong. Like if you say no, then I dare you to get in the car. Because somehow, right, we get behind the wheel and all of a sudden we become very justice oriented, right? I experienced this several years ago, actually many years ago. Danielle and I were hanging out one day and we were driving around. It was a great day. It was beautiful. I think we'd gotten some ice cream. We're enjoying each other's company and having a great time. And we're at a traffic light. And the traffic light changed. And like, I'm, I'm pretty sure before it even turned green, a car behind me honked. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not okay. <laughs> and so we're like, what in the world? I mean, like, just enjoy the day. And as we were driving through the next, next stop of this next light, and I pull up next to the car. Now, I'm going to let them know that what they did was not okay. And so as the light changes, I got it timed. I honk and accelerate. Going, yeah, I showed them. It was glorious until I came over the hill. And I'm pretty sure they honked as I was pulled over by a police officer. (laughs) I said, our God is a God of justice. And somehow, justice and mercy, love, justice, meet. Not because God overlooks sin, but because sin was going to be paid for. And when we come to the doctrine of salvation, we come to this place where we recognize our God is just, which means he can't overlook our sin, but our God is loving And our God is gracious and our God is merciful and he would not stop at anything until that cost, that debt was paid so that justice 
and love could prevail. You probably didn't think that a message around salvation would start in Leviticus. But it's this understanding the context of this Old Testament sacrificial system that makes what Jesus did all that much more glorious. And when Jesus comes on the scene, what we find is people are pointing and seeing that he is the fulfillment of what they'd been practicing, their grandparents had been practicing, their great-great-great-grandparents had been practicing. Because when Jesus shows up on the scene, John the Baptist proclaims, he points to this. In John 1.29, when he says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he, John the Baptist, said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was pointing to the sin problem, the bad news of sin, and he was pointing to the ultimate solution. Blood had to be shed in order for sin to be forgiven. And that is why Jesus came. Now, as we look at salvation, it's easy to jump to the cross. But I want us to look at three factors, three parts that are important for us to understand and experience the salvation that God has given us. And those three things are Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. In his life, Jesus points to a salvation that is coming you ever thought about this? Why didn't Jesus just show up on Thursday and die on Friday? Why did he live here for 33 odd years before he died, if he came for the sole purpose of dying? Well, as you know, in the Old Testament, people got in big trouble. Why? Because when they were offering sacrifices, they offered imperfect sacrifices. They didn't give their best. The fact that Jesus lived did two things. One, he modeled and he showed us what it would look like to follow him. And secondly, and more importantly, he was blameless. Now, blameless because you showed up yesterday and you died today? No, blameless because you lived, you walked, you breathed, you were human. The sacrifice needed to be blameless. And through his life, Jesus pleased the Father. He delighted in God's will. He had no sin and he fulfilled the law. 1 Peter 1.2 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Therefore, he was the perfect sacrifice. It was the perfect obedience of Jesus that qualified him to die in the place of the disobedient. The blameless, the perfect life, led to death. Because he was sinless, Jesus had one ultimate purpose, to be offered up as payment in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 has these beautiful words. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin which means he was a substitute. His death was him stepping in and dying the death that you and I deserved. As a substitute, what was he doing? He was paying the price. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages, the cost, the debt of sin was death. So someone had to die. But not just die. He had to satisfy the debt. 
In John 19, 30, as Jesus is on the cross, it says when he had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What was finished? The debt. He canceled it. Which is why Paul writes in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, and you who were dead and your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In his death, he was a substitute. He paid the price and he canceled the debt. He was the final sacrifice. He concluded the Old Testament sacrificial system once and for all and opened the door to rescue. As I said before, the Day of Atonement, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would take the blood of the goat that was sacrificed for the sins of the people and he would splash the blood, sprinkle the blood around the Holy of Holies, basically cleansing the blood representatively would cleanse the sin from the Holy of Holies so that God could continue to dwell with his people. And that happened year after year after year after year after year after year. And so when Jesus on the cross says, it is finished, and he breathes his last, what happens? The veil separating the holy of holies from everyone else tears. Why? Because Jesus is saying, it's finished. The sacrifices will no longer need to be offered. And you are no longer on the outside. I am ushering you in. I am rescuing you. I am saving you. I'm allowing you once and for all to have access to God. From the beginning in the garden, when he points to the snake being crushed, when he points to the garments being made and the sacrifices being made, what is he doing? He's pointing to one day, this is going to happen. I will restore what was lost. I will bring you back. But, was it enough for Jesus to die? Did he need to come back to life? If he canceled the debt, if he paid the cost, if he was the substitute, was the resurrection actually needed? And the answer is an absolutely resounding yes. On Good Friday, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. And on Easter Sunday, Jesus conquered death and was then offer, able to offer us life. Romans 4, 23 and 25 says, but the words, and this is Paul writing, he's talking about Abraham and his faith being credited as righteousness. He says, but it wasn't just for him, it's for us. He says, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. Friday, delivered up for our trespasses, but Sunday, raised for our justification. Jesus' life made him blameless. Jesus' death paid our penalty. And his resurrection justified us and made us right before God, giving us, extending to us, the offer of eternal life. You see, salvation, when we talk about it in church, we talk about the day you were saved. There is a moment. 
we believe when you go from death to life, it's not a transition. The journey, there can be a journey where God's drawing and God's bringing people closer and you can look at how he worked in the past, bringing you to a place. But there was a place in which you came to where you went from dead to alive because we know you don't have like, well, he was mostly dead or he was mostly alive or partly alive. You're either living or you're dead. And there's a moment in which we go from death to life. That is salvation. But it's not just a one-time event because the salvation continues to work itself out day after day after day as we become more like him, which is called sanctification. But here's the question. If God was going to go through these lengths to rescue us, what is his strategy to let others know that the rescue is available and the rescue is possible? Like if he's going to do all of that to save us, he's got to have a really good plan to make sure those who haven't been rescued can know that they can be rescued, right? The answer, it's you and it's me. Check out 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 11, Paul writes, but we have this treasure, God's power, God's salvation. Where? In jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. Why? Because we can't save ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves. We need a rescuer. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. God's plan was to take the greatest news the world has ever heard and to put it where? In jars of clay. To let it shine through the lives of broken people like you and me. Now, if you know anything about clay, clay isn't exactly the most safe place to put something you treasure, right? All it takes is one slip, one drop, and that thing shatters. But God says, that's plan A. That's how I want the world to see what I can do. I want rescued people to point to me. Don't know what you know about pottery, but there's a a form of pottery called kintsugi. It's Japanese. And kintsugi says, we're not going to start with clay and make a perfect piece of pottery. We're going to take broken pieces of what was once and put it back together. And actually what happens, as you can see in these pictures, is the cracks are filled in by gold, oftentimes pure gold. I went to try to find, and because I wanted to have a piece of kintsugi pottery to show you this morning, but guess what? They're too expensive. (laughs) Think about it. Broken pottery is more expensive than perfect pottery. Why? Because of the cracks. And I don't know about you, but which one of these do you want? I think I want the one on the right. I want the one that was shattered, that was then put back together. I want gold all over it. And guess what? When you look at it, what do you see? What's your attention drawn to? It's not the, oh, that's a bowl. Would you look at all of those cracks? That's what God does. 
That's how he saves. And that's why he looks at you and me and says, you, you are who I'm going to use to declare my rescuing work to a lost and dying world. As I thought about it this week, and I thought about where we are as a church, I thought this is, this is true of us. In a lot of ways, you could say things are broken and things have shattered and there are pieces on the ground. And a lot of, back in, on Good Friday, I'm guessing the enemy was celebrating. He thought he'd won. And I'm guessing right now when it comes to what's going on around here and Craig having left and the questions and doubts and fears and hurt around here, the enemy is going, would you look at the broken pieces? I've got them right where I want them. And I've got to believe that our God is looking at the broken pieces and he's saying, you have no idea what I can do. You have no idea what I can bring back together. And guess what? It's not going to be about you because people aren't going to look at you. They're going to look at me because I'm the one who's going to put it back together. And guys, God does his best work when it's darkest. God does his best work when it's hopeless. God does his best work when other people are saying the story's over. Don't take my word for it. Look at Genesis chapter 3. If that was who our God was, if our God gives up on what he starts, then guess what? There we wouldn't be here today. Because the garden would have been where he would have wiped the slate clean and he would have started over. But our God restores. Our God saves. Our God makes beautiful things out of the mess. Because guess what? The declaration to a lost and dying world is not that he's found the perfect people, but that he's rescued the broken people. And if he can do that for me, imagine what he could do for you. I don't know what's going on in your world. I don't know what's broken. But the beauty of the doctrine of salvation is this. When we keep in view what God has done and the rescue that has been done on our behalf, guess what? Every other problem is less than. Because if I remember and am constantly reminded of what God has done to rescue me, then everything else is easier than that. It's not a question of if. It's a matter of what God is doing in the midst of the brokenness. The doctrine of salvation is an incredible encouragement to you and to me every single day. Salvation has no meaning unless you recognize that saving was not only required, but is in fact possible. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and through Christ alone. We cannot rescue ourselves, which is why Jesus came. The doctrine of sin definitively declares that rescue is required. But the doctrine of salvation victoriously proclaims that rescue is possible. So I want to end by pointing to what I think are probably the three categories represented in this room this morning. Number one, maybe you are here this morning and you've heard this many times. Maybe you're hearing it for the first time, but you're going, I need that. I know I need rescuing. Guess what? Rescue happens by saying yes. Rescue happens by simply receiving the payment that was paid on your behalf and you saying 
yes. You can't do anything. You can't earn anything. You simply receive the salvation and the rescue that God has made possible for you. If that's you, man, we want to invite you to say yes today. But there's a second category. Maybe there's those of you here today who are going, I think I probably need rescuing, but I'm not sure this is the rescue that I want. Maybe I'm going to keep looking so that I can find another way. Well, for you, I, can I encourage you by sharing with you a story? This spring, I went back and I listened to the Chronicles of Narnia. Incredible stories, right? And written by C.S. Lewis. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is kind of the most well-known, but the entire series is amazing. And, and the central to the story is Aslan, the lion, who represents God. And in this book called The Silver Chair, there's this young girl, Jill, who's walking through the woods in the, the world of Narnia, and she's dying of thirst. She's looking for a, a place to get a drink of water. And she comes and she hears this bubbling brook and she comes to the water and as she gets closer, she freezes in fear. Because while she sees the water that she's desperate for, on the other side of the, the water, she sees this massive lion. And their exchange goes like this. Are you thirsty? Said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind maybe going away while I do? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to? To, uh, to, you know, do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I'll make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without even noticing, she had come a step nearer. Do you, uh, do you eat girls, she asked. A very valid question. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. But it didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I, I, I daren't, daren't come to drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step closer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. The doctrine of salvation declares to us that there is no other source of rescue. There is no other way to life. It's Jesus or nothing. And so if you're in a place where you're wondering, maybe I'll find something else, I will save you the time because what we find here is that there is no other place. There is no other stream. And if you go back to that cave in Thailand, after days and days of search and then figuring out a plan, there came a moment for every single member of that team and the coach where they had to put their faith and trust in the rescuers who had come. 
And in doing that, they had to put on a mask. They had to do whatever was necessary for them to be taken underwater and carried a mile out so that they could experience life. They could have chosen to stay where they were, seeming that that maybe seemed safer, but the reality was that meant certain death. The incredibly good news of our God is he says, there is a problem. You need to be rescued. And then instead of sending a rescuer, he came himself. And he still stands before each and every person and says, do you want life? Do you want to be saved? That's the invitation he gives. And it's the truth that's woven all throughout Scripture, pointing ultimately to Jesus. In Acts 4.12, we're reminded if there, there is no doubt where we read, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So if you are not wanting rescue or looking for another option, there's another group of people. And those are those of us here today who have been rescued And today, hopefully you've been challenged, you've been encouraged by the depth of that rescue, which has left you only in greater awe and admiration and worship for our God. The prophet prophet Isaiah points to the day of this. He's pointing to the day this will happen. And we're looking back, reading his words in 61 verse 10. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Remember the garden? What did Jesus, what did God do? He covered them with clothes, with skins of animals. A foretelling of the robe of righteousness, the garment of salvation that you and I would one day be clothed in as a result of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The same God who clothed Adam and Eve has clothed you and me with salvation. And for those of us who've been rescued and experienced salvation that only comes through Jesus, I want to remind you of what you've been given. Because salvation can't stop at one day in heaven. Salvation is experienced now. And in saving us, he has given us so much more. Through Jesus, you are forgiven. Through Jesus, you are saved. Through Jesus, you are justified and you are reconciled. You are loved and adopted, cleansed and healed, redeemed. And you and I are free. You are rescued. You are triumphant. You and I have hope and you and I have an inheritance, and you and I have peace, and ultimately you and I have rest. That is what our God has done for us. That is what salvation provides and makes possible through Jesus. As we close, I want to invite you simply to respond. Don't know which one of those three groups of people you find yourself in today but I would ask you wherever you are to simply respond to what Jesus is calling you to do next. Maybe it's saying, yes, I need to be rescued. Maybe it's saying, I will worship you all the more because of the rescuer who has come for me. Maybe you wanna go and celebrate the Lord's communion in the corners, celebrating the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord as you take that bread and you dip it in the juice and you say, yes, I am saved. For all of us, I want to invite us to worship as the rescued children we are, declaring the truth of Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom 
we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of salvation. God, we thank you that you didn't leave us to figure out if we really needed rescue or not. You made it clear that rescue was required. And then you made it abundantly clear that rescue is available. It is possible through Jesus. So God, we worship you today. And if there are those in here in this room that are taking, need to take that step, that res- recognize they have not been yet rescued, God, all that's separating them from in need of rescue to being rescued would simply be yes, trusting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross and the empty tomb. So God, this morning, may we worship you with all that we have as we praise you and declare the goodness of our God. And God, may we take seriously the fact that you've entrusted in broken pieces of pottery, the gift of life for a lost and dying world. God, we love you and we praise you for who you are and for what you've done. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.